This Dharma talk was recorded live at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. If you enjoy these talks and wish to support the temple and its offerings, please visit austinzencenter.org. Thank you for listening. It's a pleasure to welcome Brandon Lamson, King Kai, Brandon Lamson. Um, I can't remember when we first met, probably in Houston, I'm guessing. I think so. Mm-hmm. Um, he is a long-term practitioner at Houston Zen Center. We share the same teacher now, uh, at Galen Godwin, Hunjin Galen Godwin. And uh, Brandon is a is a person about which about whom there's too much to say, so I'll just I'll just pick up a couple of things. He's a poet and a writer and a teacher of creative writing, and uh, he now lives here in Austin. After many years of teaching uh, in Houston, he has a tenure track position in at UT and lives in Hyde Park. And so we share him with Houston, and it's, it's fortunate for all of us. Um, he uh, has also uh, offered uh, some teaching uh, already in a number of venues uh, and, uh, and also meditation instruction. Um, and he's published some uh, Buddhist writing in several of the magazines of which you might be familiar, Buddha Dharma, Tricycle. And he's preparing for priest ordination in January. So uh, it seemed like the thing to ask him to give us a talk. And he said yes. So thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. <laughs> Wonderful. And thanks to Choro for inviting me and all of you for being here. Um, just to immediately deflate my reputation. Uh, my position is not tenure track at UT. Oh, and I do enjoy it very much. And I don't live in High Park. I live in Windsor Park. Oh, that's right. <laughs> 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 just east, you know, the other side of I-35, so just taking a little shine off of <laughs> But wonderful, wonderful impression. Thank you so much. Um, can everybody hear me okay? Yeah. The acoustics are phenomenal in here. I want to talk today about this image of the four horses. During Churro's talk last weekend, one of the uh, Sangha members asked, how can we take care of all the beings in our minds? And I believe that Choro was mentioning that Dogen somewhere had suggested that we take care of all of the beings in our minds. And I thought that that how, the how we take care of all beings was really something worthy of sitting with and talking about today. The focus of our practice period is a phrase that comes from Shunru Suzuki, things as it is, things as it is. And I know we're going to be talking a lot about things as it is over the course of the practice period. One way I think that we can view things as it is, is it refers to the totality of the situation in which we find ourselves. Every moment we're invited to open to accord with things as it is. As a writer, of course, that that grammatical mistake is like sand in my shoe. <laughs> but I appreciate it immensely because it makes me pay attention to it. And I think about the plural things as it is in the singular. And about how that phrase also implies that um, we're always swimming in, engaging with, actualizing the one and the many 
or the singular and the world of difference, of distinction, and how those realms of oneness and differentiation are not different. And of course, that's something we're studying when we're reading Shinru Suzuki's talks on the Sandokai, which um, I know many of you are in that class, or is it too late to join? Uh, you could bribe me, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a very pervasive topic in our practice, things as it is. Another thing that Suzuki Roshi once said in terms of awakening is, and this is his quote, to forget this moment and grow into the next. Awakening is to forget this moment and to grow into the next. Uh, I found that really evocative, this idea of growing into the next. And I had an opportunity to work with uh, both things that it, as it is, and this idea of forgetting the moment and growing into the next. Um, this past summer, when I was scheduled to go to Tassajara for a three-week practice intensive. So Tassajara, for those of you who don't know, is a Zen mountain monastery that's associated with the San Francisco Zen Center. And it's in the Ventana wilderness, and it, it's very effortful to get there. You're off the grid once you arrive at Tassajara. So I had planned for months to go do this three-month intensive, and I had the time off from work, and all the pieces were in place. And then I, um, I drove to the Austin airport, our beloved, crowded <laughs> Austin airport, and I went through security, and I got to the gate, and I had a massive panic attack nausea, dizziness, and um, I couldn't get on the plane, to make a long story short. Never had a panic attack in my life. So all of a sudden, the, the array of dominoes that had been <laughs> aligned to get me to Tassajara all fell apart. And I felt very defeated and very distraught. And um, very puzzled too. And so then what happened was after I arrived back home and my wife looked at me strangely, like, what are you doing here? <laughs> like, what happened to you? And I told her about it. Then my three week practice period became practicing in the heat dome of Austin, mm -hmm. right? Sitting Zazen every day, sewing my robes for priest ordination. And that was things as it is for me in that situation. I think that that gave me a lot of opportunity to really lean into the practice in a particular way because I felt like I really didn't have anywhere else to turn, you know. And the intensity of that duress, of that experience was really enriching. And I think all of us have these moments where we face things as it is, and they're not what we want or what we intended. And then there's an opportunity to grow into that, that experience or that moment. 
that leads me to the four horses. And this image of the four horses of practice was also something that was really reassuring to me. I first read about this image of the four horses. How many of us have heard about the four horses, this, this analogy? Oh, a number of us have. I read about it in Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, uh, which is a collection of talks by Shinru Suzuki. And it's in a chapter called, or a talk called, The Marrow of Zen, The Marrow of Zen. The image of the four horses, this analogy, is actually from an ancient Buddhist scripture in which the Buddha talks to his disciples about these four horses. And the four horses are metaphors for ways of practicing or engaging with practice. So this is what Shinru Suzuki says um, about this. In our scriptures, it is said that there are four kinds of horses, excellent ones, good ones, poor ones, and bad ones. The excellent horses run when they see the shadow of the whip. The good horses run just before the whip reaches its skin. The poor horse when it feels pain, and the bad one when the pain penetrates to the marrow of its bones. There are a couple of ways of um, thinking about this analogy about these horses. One is that you are the horse and your teacher is the rider. Like, like um, which horse you are, excellent, good, poor, or bad, is indicated or measured by the degree to which you can respond to instructions, how you can um, intuitively grasp what's happening by observing your teacher. In our Zen way, often, um, we learn by watching the teacher and emulating what the teacher is doing before we receive explanation about why we're doing what we're doing. There's this idea of moving your body, like putting yourself in a position that's first shown to you by your teacher or modeled to you by your teacher. I think another way to understand this model of horses is that you're both the rider and the horse. Uh, you possess what, what Suzuki Roshi calls the driver's will, and you strive to follow this will. And I'm thinking about the uh, famous series of the ox herding pictures, where um, the mind is symbolized by the symbol of the ox, and the one who's the person who's leading the ox symbolizes the intention of the practitioner, the strong desire to um, attain freedom from suffering and delusion. I think um, whichever view of, of the horse image we take, we all want to be the excellent one. We all want to be the excellent one. Suzuki Roshi cautions against this. He says in his talk, if you think the aim of Zen practice is to become one of the best horses, you will have a big problem. This is not the right understanding. If you practice Zen in the right way, it does not matter whether you are the best horse or the worst one. And um, I feel better already. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly after my massive panic attack, I felt a lot better <laughs> thinking, oh, okay, all right, here I am. Now what, right? If I could have rationally understood what was happening to me or what happened to me, then I could have dismissed it more easily. But because I couldn't really understand it, it was just a tangle like a tangle inside of me and that forced me to be with it and to um to sit with it so worst horse or excellent horse don't worry 
Don't worry. I think we can talk about this more personally for, for each of us. So we think about how we come into this space of practice. And some of us find certain parts of the practice just more intuitively comfortable or easier. Um, some folks really enjoy zazen from the beginning. Others really enjoy the practice of chanting or bowing, the ceremonial practice that we do together. Others really enjoy the sangha practice we do, the work practice that we do together. And we can also tune into the parts of practice that we don't feel naturally inclined to do or receptive towards. And um, those can be, I think, areas of real growth wherever we're resisting certain aspects of the practice. For me, it was bowing. I know when I first came in to a Zen center and there was all this bowing and I thought, what's this about? What's this bowing business? And it was very much outside of my framework of experience, you know, very much outside of my understanding. And then I realized at a certain point, it's really great to bow, <laughs> to like a lot, like many, many, many bows as a way of really surrendering whatever it was that I was trying to hold on to by resisting the bowing or to really try to get the body involved, my entire body involved in my practice by literally prostrating and touching my forehead to the ground. So that didn't come to me naturally or easily. And that's why I think it was really important for me to, to keep practicing bowing, for example. I think all of us have these areas in our practice. Our facility, our ease with certain activities can actually be a kind of hindrance says Shinru Suzuki, when things come too easily to us, we can sometimes not um, appreciate them fully or put as much effort into them as we would if they didn't come to us so easily. Suzuki says, when you are determined to practice Zazen with the great mind of Buddha, you will find the worst horse is the most valuable one. In your very imperfections, you will find the basis for your firm way-seeking mind. Your very imperfections, you will find the basis for your firm, way-seeking mind. I think that's really a beautiful and important quote. So working with your shortcomings, whatever you view as your imperfections, can inform and deepen how you practice. This is how we take care of all the beings in our minds. One way. Um, I was thinking of example, um, during the pandemic, I started engaging in, in drawing and painting and having my students do some drawing and painting in class. And I have no ability to draw or paint. Like, and, and, um, and because it's such a low stakes activity for me, I have complete enjoyment in drawing and painting. But I would show my students, I would, um, let's say we were uh, studying Gilgamesh, I would do some drawings of some characters in Gilgamesh in the epic poem and show them and they would be so offended. They'd be like, you know this is a terrible drawing, right? <laughs> I was teaching on Zoom then, so I just hold it up to the screen. And um, I would say, yes, but I really enjoyed drawing this. <laughs> Maybe you can try, right? So there is a kind of liberation 
in opening to doing something that feels very awkward or unnatural to us, something that we have strong resistance to doing. And I'm thinking about in terms of, of practice opportunities. I like the painter Philip Guston. Um, Philip Guston's gotten some, had some big shows lately. And I was watching a documentary with Philip Guston and he showed a painting to the filmmaker and then they came back the next morning and it was completely painted over. The image was totally painted out. And the filmmaker said, why did you do that? And he said, I didn't experience enough with the canvas. Like it came too easily. I didn't experience enough with the canvas. So I didn't feel like it was really at a place of completion. He said, it looked like a kind of painting where it was an accretion of this thing and this thing and this thing and this thing, rather than like a whole image that couldn't be broken up into parts. And if he had worked on it longer and had sufficient experience with that process, it wouldn't look like something you could break apart into pieces. It would be this like living entirety. So I think our practice is like that too. I think our practice is like that too. We have to experience our practice field, our practice field <laughs> really extensively and wholeheartedly. So another way I want to talk about this image is uh, that each of us contains all four of these horses. Each of these contain all four of these horses. So these four horses as kinds of internal objects. I'm speaking to the psychotherapists in the room. The idea that we contain all these horses the worst horse, the bad horse, the good horse, the excellent horse. And then we vacillate between these horses in different moments, according to our limited perception of what's happening inside of us and outside of us. When we're experiencing what I'll call the excellent horse, we're not self-conscious about our practice. The practice seems to do us rather than us having to effortfully do the practice. When we're noticing the what I'll call the worst horse, we're making a lot of conscious effort in the practice and we're evaluating what we're doing. Judgmental mind arises when we're struggling with the worst <laughs> horse. Uh, when we're saddled to the worst horse, another way to say it is that our mistakes seem like catastrophes. Like this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me in my life. And maybe it's during like a meditation retreat, a session in which I, I forget to pass the rice to <laughs> the person next to me, you know. But it's so amplified, right, in this intimate container of practice. Or once uh, I was in a meditation retreat with my wife, who's actually here, and it was led by Tension Rev Anderson, a teacher that many of you know. And um, she hadn't been fully informed about the Oriyoki eating conventions, this, this particular way that we eat our meals during these retreats. And part of it is that you take a certain amount of food and you have to eat all of it. So, so she was eating her almonds and all of a sudden I saw this bowl, this hand reaching a bowl to me. And she's like, you have the rest. Oh, it's supposed to be silent too. It's also supposed to be silent. It's like, you have the rest. And, and I just looked down and I looked at, at Rev Anderson and he looked at me and we just had a look. And I took the almonds. Because <laughs> what are you going to do, right? 
when your wife offers you almonds, you better eat them. I'm just saying. It's not a bad theory. Um, so that could be a catastrophe if, if, we're, if we're really close to this worst horse state of being and self-judgment. I also want to, and this is just my interpretation. This isn't something that's coming from another source, but I wanted to also talk about the four horses in a different way and kind of play around with this image. And um, I encourage all of you to do this too. You know, when you're reading the teachings, don't be afraid to make them your own and to um, use your imagination to engage with the teachings and, and phrase them in different ways that resonate with you. So I was thinking about, about the four horses as representing different aspects of our practice. So let's say one of the horses I'm going to call Zaza, and another horse I'll call Ceremony, and the third horse I'll call the practice of ethical precepts, and then the fourth horse I'll call Sangha practice or work practice. If I talk about Zazen and Ceremony, these two horses, as um, ritual practices, Zazen is a kind of ritual that we enact. Uh, there's no distinction between Zazen and awakening. We're fully actualizing and manifesting awakening as we sit. The ritual of Zazen is expressing gratitude towards all Buddhas um, for supporting us in our practice. So that's, a, that's what I'm calling a ritual, kind of ritual practice, Zazen. And the ceremonies, of course, are ritual practices, in which we, we perform rituals. And then the second two horses, ethical precepts and sangha practice, I'll call them relational practices because they, they engage with how we relate to others. I try to follow the precepts, these ethical principles. In order to interact with sangha and to work with sangha, I have to relate to other people. And um, I think that we can see these four horses as a model of how we balance the ritual practices and the relational practices. And how do we take care of the ritual practices and the relational practices? And I'm also going to like immediately try to break down this separation that I've already described and say maybe one way we do that is bringing um, bringing qualities of love and, love and empathy to the ritual practices. So bringing the relational qualities of empathy, of love, to our zazen, to our ceremonies, the way in which we do our ceremonies, and then bringing a sense of um, form and precision from the ritual practices to the relational practices. It's like how we engage with the ethical precepts requires a certain awareness of boundary in a positive sense. And how we engage in Sangha work or Sangha practice also benefits from a kind of precision and a kind of heightened awareness that we bring, I think, naturally to Zazen and to ceremony. So we're not preferring any of these horses either the ritual horses or the ceremony or the, the relational horses. We're not preferring them. They're totally interwoven. They're completely interrelated in, a, in our practice. The last thing that I want to talk about is, so as I'm preparing to um, be ordained, 
uh, by my teacher, Gail and Godwin, on January 27th. You're all invited. <laughs> January 27th, 11 a.m., Houston, Texas. <laughs> One thing that she's asked me to do is to read uh, a number of different fascicles or texts written by Dogen and to write responses, like short essays. And then I mail them, like old school. I print them out, and I sign them, and I mail them to her. And then they're placed in some secret file, so I don't even know <laughs> what happens to them. <laughs> but uh, They reappear when you least expect them. I'll proofread them more carefully. <laughs> So Dogen wrote an undated fascicle called Four Horses, and that was one of the texts that I wrote a response to. And um, that was really, you know, the thing that started me thinking about the Four Horses and maybe speaking about the Four Horses. So um, Dogen extends this model. So the Buddha spoke about how um, the horse represents the <coughs> practitioner, and for example, the excellent horse, as soon as he, as he hears about the teaching, has a swift response and a kind of intuitive grasp of the Dharma. And the good horse is the student who hears the Buddha's teaching and needs a little bit more explication in order to have a kind of response. Dogen takes this and, and kind of ingeniously modifies it a little bit to talk about the bodhisattva practice that many of us engage in. So I'm just going to read directly from Dogen's um, writing on the four horses. So Dogen says, the first horse is like someone who hears about the impermanence of a village and arouses the thoughts of leaving home or entering into practice. The second horse is like someone who hears about the impermanence of one's own village and leaves home. The third is like someone who hears about the impermanence of one's parents and leaves home. And the last horse is like someone who experiences the suffering of one's own disease and leaves home. So I think that's really, really profound. It's a really profound way to look at the horses. As Dogen is describing them, there are four different motivations for practice. And the, the excellent horse is the one that has sufficient compassion and sensitivity to arouse the desire for awakening, even when one hears about the impermanence of a village. That's maybe in conventional terms, not one's own. The good horse, when the practitioner hears about the impermanence of one's own village. Austin is burning. Oh no, I must practice. All right, the, the bad horse, I'm using these pejorative terms lightly, is one that hears about the impermanence of one's own family. And the worst horse is the one that arouses the desire to leave home, to enter practice when one experiences the suffering of one's own disease. So that seems to be um, part of our practice is developing and broadening our field of compassion, our field of response 
our field of attunement. And part of this realization that everything is within us, everything is within us, we're taking care of all the beings in our mind. Right? Part of, of doing that really totally means leaning into practice when one hears about the impermanence of a village. Right? Understanding that that village, wherever that village is, is not separate from one's own practice area, practice place. And so I really appreciate how Dogen, um, how Dogen works with that, that image. Dogen says, and um, I'm going to end with this, towards the end of this text, Dogen says, when you follow a master and encounter a true person, there is no place a guiding phrase is not present. There is no moment when you don't see a shadow of the whip. When you follow a master and encounter a true person, there's no place a guiding phrase is not present no moment when you don't see a shadow of the whip. Of course, you are the master and the student. You're the true person, and you're also the deluded person simultaneously. You're the one who's wielding the whip, and you're also the one who's perceiving the shadow. So I hope that we can all continue to uh, ride our horses together in our practice. As as a teacher of creative writing and your students, uh, what uh, do you use this uh, the horses and in, in, in your work? Um do you repeat the question? Oh yes. Uh, in my creative writing classes that I teach at UT, do I use the four horses in my work? Absolutely. Absolutely, I think a real, um, something I try to um, convey to the students early on is to really silence, or if not silence, more compassionately meet their own internal self-censor, you know, their own um, desire to immediately edit what they're doing. And um, all my creative writing classes incorporate some element of a writing workshop where the students send their work to each other, and then they sit down and they look at the piece of writing and they give each other feedback, constructive feedback. And so there's a real sense of kind of a collective effort in the room to work on this writing process. And it's very process oriented. It's not like, okay, you're gonna write this one thing and that's some kind of evaluation that's singular. It's more like an ongoing practice that we're inculcating. And um, you want the, the student to have an awareness of what they're doing, but not to um, not to be afflicted by perfectionism to such a degree that they feel stifled, right? That they can write something and then learn how to go back and revise it, to re-envision it, right? Not just to make a few grammatical changes, but really to go back into the piece of writing and do something different. That requires a lot of courage and flexibility, right? qualities that we bring to our Zen practice. And then the other thing is uh, this semester, for the first time, I'm teaching a new class called Contemplative Writing, which is really meditation and writing. But I've snuck it into the academy by calling it Contemplative Writing. And so we do um, some guided meditation in class. 
And then we also uh, do in-class writing. So we'll sit and then immediately write together. Or we'll write and then we'll go and sit. Or we'll sit and then we'll do a workshop together. So, so they have this experience of um, moving from one practice to the other. Um, and I think I'm going to bring this class to our beautiful Austin Zen Center in the next few weeks, just so they can come here, because now we're starting to do Zazen together. Um, so yes, Charlie, I'm, I'm really leaning into that effort. Yeah. Yes. Could you talk about the imagery or metaphor of the donkey related to like the donkey and the horse and the, the teacher meets the donkey or the horse? It doesn't matter in a way. Um, you know, do you know that? I'm, I'm like saying, mentioning this Nesson's question without being able to really precisely relate the story. Mm -hmm. Is that just the color of that horse's cross and donkey's cross? Yes. Oh, please tell me. Thank you. Sure. I don't think I can. That's the phrase that I remember. But uh, yeah, it's about who who can cross over, which is a metaphor for you know mm -hmm. ending suffering, enlightenment, mm -hmm. and the punchline of this koan, which I'd have to look up to remember clearly. Or maybe somebody else knows it, but um, everybody can cross, basically, mm -hmm. is the punchline, right? Yeah, that's what, I mean, what immediately comes to mind, and I want to do some more research about that, since it's really interesting, is that there's some kind of hierarchical relationship between horses and donkeys, and I guess, maybe conventionally speaking, donkeys are seen as less capable than horses. Yeah. However, donkeys are completely... Um, stubborn. Are stubborn, persistent, <laughs> manifesting Buddha nature in the same way that horses do. So um, maybe the donkey is the worst, worst, worst <laughs> kind of <laughs> just, I'm stretching, I'm stretching, but um, I have to look more into that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, sometimes I feel like a donkey who just doesn't care. And but something keeps bringing me back. And it's this weird like kind of push pull thing I have to spend. Mm -hmm. So I I'm glad the poll is happening right now. This poll has brought you here. So that's wonderful. Mm -hmm. uh, there's there's a koan um, that says that there's a phrase, only one phrase from it that I remember, but it has a quote that's like the 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 horse arrives before the donkey has left. No, okay. Yeah, that seemed. Yeah, the the horse has arrived before the donkey has left. Mm. That's what one master says. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I think Bruce is here on hiding behind this uh, statue. He contributed recently a, a <clears throat> cartoon to our Discord server comedy channel. <laughs> It's a loaf of bread, which is partly sliced. And it says, am I many or am I one? <laughs> I was thinking of that when we were talking about the four horses, essentially, is all these different ways of looking at them. But also, it's all one horse. Mm -hmm. The other way of looking at it is it's one horse. <clears throat> and that horse is you. Mm -hmm. so, uh, thanks, Bruce. <laughs> yeah, that's really helpful. And we're the horse that's arising this moment. That's the horse we are right now. And then the next moment. Um, when I try to squirm away from the horse that's presenting itself, 
in that moment, um, that's a place of suffering too. Um, like when I was, um, I can remember when I was in the midst of the panic attack, really trying to fight it at first. Like, no, this can't be happening. I'm going to muscle through this. I'm going to power through this. I'm going to crush it. <laughs> Ancient Zen phrasing. <laughs> but um, that did not work. Obviously, you know from the story, like, that did not work, you know. Um, but because I was resisting, I didn't, what I didn't recall in the moment was just breathe. Like, that wasn't available to me in that moment. Like, hey, just do the thing that you've been trained to do for 18 years. Just breathe. And so that's interesting to, to note. Um, I thought, Dawn, did you have a hand up? I did, but you just almost just answered the whole thing because okay. my question was going to be, first, thank you for sharing that experience because when we leave ourselves vulnerable and share about it, it really gives others the opportunity to learn. And I appreciate that so much. And, but, you know, I was just going to ask you, can you elaborate on your response and how you work with that? With and, you know, I know I'm sure the poor horse concept came into it, but I was just going to ask you to kind of elaborate a little bit on, mm -hmm. on, you know, how you work through that. Mm -hmm. Um, well, I was upset for a long time. I was upset for a long time. Um, and the first thing I did was I didn't do the thing that I habitually would tend to do, which is to not tell anybody. So I didn't go AWOL for three weeks. Um, I told my teacher, Galen, immediately. I informed some other folks of what had happened. And then the other thing I did um, was I really practiced intensively in the heat dome of Austin, in the relentless heat dome. It was July. It was the end of July. So that was part of it, too. It's like, oh, I'm going to take this great. I'm going to have a respite from the, from the Texas heat. I'll be in the mountains. It'll be wonderful. I was really looking forward to it. Um, but then it was like, okay, now it's time to really lean into practice and make a schedule for myself in Austin and follow it. And um, it was a real kind of internal gut check moment, you know. Uh, and so I'm really grateful that I was able to practice. Um, and um, as I said, uh, I couldn't rationally untangle the tangle. So I just sat and, um, and tried to be present with the sensations and the feelings that were coming up every time I remembered um, what had happened. So that's, yeah, I think that's a little more extensive. Um, I see my wife's face. I was telling her yesterday I was going to talk about this, and she said, oh, no. <laughs> no, you're not. I, said, I think I am. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So, but thank you, Don. That's, that's thank you. A good question. 
Any other questions before our refreshments and cookies and whatnot? I have one. Um, uh, going back to part where you were talking about um, the artist who destroyed his own work because he felt that it was disconnected from what he was intending to do. Um, how would you relate that to when you are working on a creative project, keeping yourself from editing uh, what you're doing? Uh, or what should be the intention when you are it? Yeah, that's wonderful. That's a really wonderful and complex question. It's really interesting. So I think that painter, Philip Guston, I think he felt like the initial um, composition of the images came too easily in a way. Um, he was looking for something that bore more evidence of, of struggle and process. So he wanted the painting to not represent something in a literal way, but in order, he wanted the painting to be a kind of field of action in which the whole process of the painting's creating, creation was reflected right in that, in that, in that surface. And he felt like he, he hadn't experienced enough struggle and difficulty with the canvas. So he decided to start over again. Um, and, you know, writing and painting are different. I'm really grateful to be a writer because um, I don't have to paint over the entire image to start again. Like I can retain, you know, writers can retain previous drafts. Um, I'm not limited by a certain spatial dimension. Uh, when I'm writing, as you all know, right? So writing is inherently a little bit different process. And there's a great poem I suggest that you all read by uh, Frank O'Hara called Why I'm Not a Painter. And he talks about um, the difference between using words as your, as your artistic medium and using visual images, like painted images. So, um, so I think um, it depends upon what your intentions are, your goals, right? And for Guston, he wanted to, to reflect a kind of process that was a record, a record of engagement with the canvas. And he felt like to do that, he had to start again. You know, um, I hope that, I don't know if that answers your question. Thank you very yeah. much. Yeah, thank you. Anyone online? Can I ask a question? Uh, that's okay. This is Dave here. Uh, I just wanted to say thank you for sharing that story and specifically for relating that story to things as it is. Because uh, to me, that brought together kind of the theory of what Suzuki Roshi was saying and the practice of what actually happened to you and then also took it into the story from Dogen of the Four Horses. So um, I think that these moments where these things happen that we don't necessarily want to have happen or that we don't, we think they're kind of like extraordinary events. They're other than, they're not our real life or something. Um, but to actually, to highlight those moments and say, no, this is actually what it is. Um, I really appreciate you making that connection. So thank you. Yeah, thank you, David. Appreciate it. Yes, Elizabeth. I was I was curious about um, the way I really enjoyed how you talked about the way 
that we can also, that you leaned into the practice during some difficulties and then sometimes resisted the practice, but I'm curious about the relational aspect between us and the practice. Is, would that be yet another horse when we're resisting or leaning into or sometimes even hiding behind the practice? Um, mm. Would it be a bear, a donkey? <laughs> <laughs> I think it would be, you know, and I was thinking about, you know, bringing the, uh, the precision and the kind of um, formal quality that we practice in zazen and ceremony to our relationships with each other and, um, and to our engagement with the precepts. And um, I think we find our practice edge and uh, I think that being together in community is a really essential part of what we do. And for some of us, uh, that comes more easily or more naturally than to others of us. And I know for me, maybe the first two years I was practicing at the Houston Zen Center, I never stayed after the Dharma talks. I always left. Um, and it was really important to me that I kind of had that ability to come and go. Um, I had control over that. And um, and now, of course, when I go to the Houston Zen Center after the talks, they have to kick me out. <laughs> it's like, you know, like a lot of us, we really enjoy each other's company and, and talking to each other and meeting new people and seeing old friends. Um, but I think all of us experience that differently. And, and um, our practice can really help us because it gives us an opportunity and a container in order for us to explore that safely and to have some agency over how we're engaging with the others. And also, you know, as we get really close, we can hold each other accountable in a really friendly way, you know? Um, when we trust each other as good Dharma friends, it's kind of the best friends to have. Um, so I think that's really important. And also, you know, not to compartmentalize what we do here and then go out into the world and um, and forget the way in which we can be with each other. So, um, yeah, thank you. Does that answer your question? Thanks. Oh, yes. I recently heard or read somewhere that part of the challenge or hindrance of like the good horse or the excellent student is how easy it is to forget what you've learned. Mm -hmm. But what you started with, right, like forgetting and growing into the next moment seems like forgetting is also like a, I don't know, a blessing or like part of good, like effective practice. Mm -hmm. So could you speak to like forgetting as both a hindrance and also mm -hmm. kind of a necessary part of the practice too? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the forgetting is really um, natural. The forgetting of the teaching or the forgetting of um, what we feel like we've grasped. This happens really frequently when we do meditation retreats. And um, often our experience when we go back to a retreat, let's say after 12 months, we, we have this experience of, oh gosh, now I remember all this again. And I totally forgot. And after the retreat, I felt like so awakened. And then two weeks later, I was back on the treadmill of my habitual patterns and behaviors. So that that happens inevitably. I think part of it is to, to, as much as possible, put yourself in a position that you can refresh your closeness or intimacy with the teachings, but not to berate yourself when you do forget. 
because that inevitably does occur, right? Um, that's in, in spiritual literature and all traditions, that's a perennial theme. Even I mentioned Gilgamesh earlier. Even Gilgamesh and Gilgamesh, Gilgamesh forgets like the most important thing. He's given the plant that contains the secret of eternal life and he loses it. He loses the plant. It's eaten by a water snake. The water snake immediately sheds its skin. So, so for, for centuries, uh, for millennia, people have noticed that they often forget the most important things that they want to live by. And, um, and so I think that Suzuki Roshi is talking about a different thing when he says forgetting. I think he means forgetting more in the sense of letting go of and opening to the next moment instead of um, dwelling in the past and, and really letting yourself get swallowed and subsumed by the past. Like I often, when I was sitting, you know, in the heat dome of Austin in August, I often was, or in July, I was often swallowed by the past, like completely pulverized by the past. But, you know, I could kind of notice it. That was the, that was the good thing is I could notice what was happening. But that's, that's a great question. Yes, Matt. Thanks for your talk, um, especially uh, yeah about the panic. As someone who's also sat through panic, sometimes it's Zendo. Um, mm -hmm. uh, um, yeah, it was just really grounding to hear that. Thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. uh, and I really liked how you connected it to the like kind of like. Yeah, I guess what I want to say is um, during that those experiences for me, it's like I really do feel it in my bones. Um, and then that, that sign to, uh, that we have on the wall, it's um, maybe maybe one read one perspective why the, why the worst horse um, has or the what's the advantage of the worst horse is that he must pay attention, mm -hmm. and uh, maybe that's one kind of gift of that of those experiences. Is, lot of attention uh, and and then asking myself like can this just be information like, what is this telling me mm -hmm. I can make contact with it and, wow so much here what is all this like a lot of information a lot of attention so another perspective on uh, those experiences from my own laboratory <laughs> laboratory <laughs> yeah and uh, yeah thanks for taking on the how question yeah, that was your question. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah, yeah. How? Yeah. yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think you mentioned this, and I, I wonder what the value is of the sort of fat horse, the horse, that, uh, why don't we call them green horse, blue horse, red horse? Mm -hmm. uh, why assign this quality of goodness or badness? Is it really relevant to the story and to the lesson? Or is it distracting and it takes us places personally that are not necessarily helpful? Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are wonderful questions, I think. I think, I, I think that um, for me, I'm definitely holding those terms very lightly and thinking about their value and their usefulness, as you mentioned. And, and also for me, in a sense, they kind of 
they kind of reaffirm or validate what my natural inclinations are to judge myself and to, to live in this to live in this world where I often feel like um, all of us are subjected to evaluation and we internalize these kinds of evaluative judgments about ourselves or about others. And so just having that kind of mirrored or reflected in you know, the, the horses, um, I think shows me ultimately that those distinctions are not important, or, right? They're not really consequential. They're, they're completely fabricated. I guess another way to say it, they're completely fabricated. Um, and they live in a conventional realm that's apart from the absolute realm of the Buddha Dharma, in which they're just horses, right? Just with red, green, blue, he give them colors or whatever way we'd like to differentiate them in a non-hierarchical uh, way, right? I think that's a really wonderful um, reflection that you're bringing up. Pat, are you still? Oh, well, yeah, my friend kind of, you know, Matt kind of woke up a thought in me that, um, about aging. When you get old, it's much, your, your mind is slow and you can't dredge things up. And it's, it's interesting how hard I've had to work just to do little functions. I have to always remember, you know, the, have my keys in my hand when I get out of my car and you know things like that and so um, and yet I think I actually function better than I did when I was younger because I have to work so hard to think about all little things just to get through that day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I can. I'm middle aged now. There's no turning back. Right. And so I do I do think about time and urgency and um, and the gift of having to be deliberate about things. And um, I think Pat, you were at that retreat with me to attention Reb Anderson mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where um, he also talked about I think aging and said one thing he said to me was, um, and I think he said this publicly, as I get older and as my faculties of body and mind start to um, change and diminish, I want my practice to get stronger. Like I feel like my practice can get stronger even, even as my body and mind uh, change. Um, and I thought that was really touching. Um, so thank you for, for bringing that up.